We didn't practice that. We didn't, and we were perfectly in sync. Yeah. And it was recorded. Amazing. Mm. That's going at the beginning. Welcome to episode 114 of the Nerdfest podcast. We are back after our summer break and this week's nerds are... Dan Watkins, Peter Johnson, John Farthing, and I'm Hazel Chandler. On today's show, we're going to be talking about what we have been watching recently as we all have a brand new set of recommendations. Plus, the San Diego Comic Con is on the weekend that we are recording, so we'll be bringing you our thoughts on the latest and greatest things being announced from Hall H. Let's start the show. All right, so let's start with Comic-Con. Is there any announcement or trailer that has got us the most nerd-tingliest excitement? I did like the look of the Dungeons & Dragons trailer. Mm -hmm. I've watched it a couple of times now, and it just looks like a fun quest with a bunch of rogues and thieves and things Mm -hmm. like that. Taking the world of Dungeons & Dragons seriously, but not super seriously, which is kind of what I was hoping for with that. If they'd done a straight-laced epic fantasy Mm -hmm. along the Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings lines, I think it probably would have been the wrong move. But they've got good people involved, and it looks fun. It looked proper Dungeons & Dragon-y. A lot of the character designs and stuff are straight from... Owlbears and things like that. The gelatinous cube was in there. Yeah. What's a gelatinous cube? Yes. A gelatinous cube is a big cube made of jelly. Okay. Mm -hmm. And it will absorb you. <laughs> in what way? In in that you will be stuck inside the cube. No, do you have like is there a password to get out or is that it for eternity? It depends what you roll, I think. You're there until you can roll a double six, but obviously you're trapped in a gelatinous cube, so rolling a dice <laughs> is pretty much impossible. <laughs> um our, our, our friends Jollyboat have a song listing all the crap monsters in Dungeons and Dragons, don't they? And I saw a few of them in there. Yeah, there were there are some odd beasts uh, in the world of Dungeons and Dragons, and it looks like they've included all of them. Mm-hmm. So Fun. Sign me up. Uh, that's out in March next year. Hmm. So two good trailers this morning. One for She-Hulk, mm-hmm. which looks yeah. so much better than the last one. Yeah. You've uh, got four She-Hulks on your t-shirt right now. I have, yes. Yes, oh, these yes. are Tatiana Maslany in uh, Orphan Black in her, the different characters she plays. And where can you buy that t-shirt, Peter? <laughs> you can buy that t-shirt on Redbubble. Thank exactly. you for asking, John. <laughs> That's a Johnson original, is it? It is a Johnson wow. original. Wow. Yeah. Excellent. We'll have to put a picture of that up. Uh, but yes, I think She-Hulk trailer 2 does look mm-hmm. effects-wise much so improved. So much funnier yeah. as well. Yeah, it, it really has a nice atmosphere in it. Mm-hmm. And the other one that looked great was Black Panther. Mm. Oh. That looked actually exciting, which was probably the first thing for a Marvel trailer yeah. in quite a while. Yeah. Great song choice as well. No woman, no cry. Mm-hmm. Everything's going to be all right. I was like, no, everything is going to be all right, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's going to be quite mm-hmm. an emotional film mm-hmm. without T'Challa there. I was emotional watching the trailer, yeah. so I don't mm-hmm. know what I'm going to be like during the film. Yeah. But Are they saying T'Challa's left a baby, Panther? That's what I got from it. There was a baby being born in the trailer, mm-hmm. but I don't know whether that was Namor, the submariner, because the baby was being born under the water, mm. and he lives in Atlantis, which is also underwater. Mm. So we're going to have two sequels with large underwater elements between that and Pandora. Yes, and Aquaman 2, Aqu- which I think was mentioned in the DC no, panel. No, it wasn't, no. It wasn't. 
He's mentioned in the Shazam 2 trailer, which came out this weekend as well. There was a very weird DC panel where there was no mention of Aquaman 2 and no mention of The Flash, which I think they may have a marketing problem with, considering the star. It has entered the Speed Force 2. Straight to streaming. (laughs) <laughs> potentially I, I also I don't want to um, open this door because I have feelings about this but they might have some casting issues with Ackerman 2 as well uh, mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. I think the person we're talking about is hardly in it though from what I understand and that's nothing to do with any mm-hmm. extra curricular that the term yeah. <laughs> extra textual stuff I think it's but, a, a safe term yeah I, I, I think she's hardly in it anyway yeah I have to say that overall my Twitter feeds and things like that are a lot of Marvel chat, not mm. a lot of DC chat. Yeah. So to focus on Marvel, so Kevin Feige announced that Thor, Love and Thunder and uh, Wakanda Forever, that's the end of Phase, phase four. 4. Wakanda Forever being out in November. Yep. And then they announced Phase 5 and tentatively some Phase 6 ones as yeah, well. Yeah, so mm. there's Guardians 3, the Marvels, Fantastic Echo. Four. Fantastic Four is the start of Phase Six, which I think makes ten. That's right, yeah. With the Kang Dynasty, with and Secret Wars yeah. is Phase Six. Yes, but Secret Invasion is Phase Five. <laughs> it's getting very mathematical, yeah. <laughs> keeping track of all the Marvel things. Yeah, so, there's a lot. John, you said this morning that you had an issue with the whole idea of phases. What was that about? It just feels kind of arbitrary now. So saying, "Oh, this is the end of Phase Four, and it doesn't feel like it's built up. So, were your first phases? You had a big event movie at the end of each. So phase one was building up to Avengers, phase two, Age of Ultron. Mm-hmm. And characters and stuff would come together in the final film of that phase and it would tie something up. Phase four feels a bit wishy-washy at the moment. I'm not sure that there's, there's not a massive big I posit event that film. the connective tissue with phase four is Wong, mm-hmm. who's been in most of the things since Endgame. He was in Spider-Man, he was in Multiverse of Madness, he was in Shang-Chi... He's going to be in She-Hulk. He's going to be in She-Hulk. Mm-hmm. He keeps turning up. Yeah. And I think between now and November, Wong the movie is coming. Oh, mm-hmm. that would be awesome. And that's going to be the event movie. I hope you're not Wong. <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe there'll ever be a Wong movie. Oh. I want to see Wong the series, but all he has to do is film two wraparound scenes explaining why he has to go and live in a flat with Sean Locke, and then it brings <laughs> 15 stories high into the MCU. I would be very happy. Yeah. He has got undercover. But um, a couple of the things that had previously been announced for Marvel were not unannounced, but they weren't mentioned. Mm-hmm. We were supposed to be getting Armor Wars with Don Cheadle. That seems to have been dropped by the wayside. But Daredevil is back, mm-hmm. and people are wondering whether, because the Netflix stuff is now property of Disney as well, They've changed their minds about a couple of things. Ian, who's not with us today, is going to be very happy seeing a Daredevil series. Yeah, 18 episodes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Daredevil's popping up in a lot of things. There was a, a, we all see the little shot of Daredevil at the end of the She-Hulk trailer. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yes. Yeah. I was wondering, is that Deadpool? But it, no, it, it, yeah, mm. it's definitely Daredevil. Oh, well, she does talk to the camera in the trailer. Yes, but then kind of glances back. It's like, am I actually doing the fourth wall? So I don't know if it's mm. a regular thing. It is something that She-Hulk character does. In her comics. And Daredevil's also in Echo, we think. And yes. Charlie Cox's voice in Daredevil in the Spider-Man animated series. Mm. I'm still mm. waiting for Jessica Jones. Mm-hmm. There were rumours of her in She-Hulk as well. The suggested story is cameos abound in She-Hulk. Ah, yes. Yeah. I mean, and it, it makes sense. Does anybody remember Harvey Birdman, Attorney at Law, the adult swim series? No. 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 He was a superhero who was a lawyer. 
and his clients were all Hanna-Barbera characters. Is this what inspired you to become a lawyer? It is, yeah. Did I it inspire I... you to become a superhero as well? Yes. Yeah. One's going better than the other. Yeah. I'm a very good superhero. <laughs> and there was non-comic stuff at Comic-Con as mm-hmm. well. There's new trailers and panels for the new Lord of the Rings series and the new Game of Thrones series, both of which are coming out within a few weeks of each other. I haven't been really following these two. Which is looking exciting of those two. Genuinely, they both are. Oh, yeah. I was a bit dubious about uh, The Rings of Power. I think mainly be just because I so loved The Lord of the Rings, but The Hobbit left me cold. And yeah. I was like, mm-hmm. going back into that world, especially when a lot of the characters that we grew to love from the original trilogy aren't going to be there. Is this a prequel? Yeah, it's like a, what, a thousand years prequel? This is the second age of yeah. Middle-earth. So this is the forging of the rings and then the binding of the one ring yeah. to yeah. those rings that, and I think they said something about 10 seasons, ends <laughs> in the battle at the very God, start of no. Fellowship of the Ring. Yeah. Uh. So yeah, there is definitely going to be some connecting strings there and Galadriel, a young Galadriel yeah. is, uh, uh, so we got that Galadriel voiceover, which was the first thing that we heard mm. in Fellowship. We got that in the trailer. So, but it, it does it does sound like they're going to give the new characters their own breathing space, which is really really important. So, am I right? There's no creative involvement from the team behind the movies. So, Peter no. Jackson mm-hmm. isn't involved, and no. they got the rights to the movies. They do. They do not. Mm. Um, this is the thing that I can't quite get out of the back of my head is that Jeff Bezos has kind of said, "Buy me a Lord of the Rings." Yeah. Yeah. And they've gone and spent all of the money. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've got the epic New Zealand Vistas, at least in season one. They moved production to the UK for season two yeah. onwards. They've got rights to the appendices, mm-hmm. but not the Silmarillion mm-hmm. or anything like that. So there's the bare bones of a Tolkien story, but there'll be a lot of extrapolation. Arwen in the Lord of the Rings books gets mentioned maybe two times and has a whole story in Peter Jackson's films. It'll kind of be like that, but for everyone. But presumably they can't reference things that were created for the film and even things like designs and stuff. So if if there's orcs and elves and stuff, do they have to look slightly different? I think they've got the same concept artists Mm -hmm. and John Howe, Alan Lee, people like that, who worked on illustrated editions of Mm -hmm. Tolkien books and also worked on the Peter Jackson films. Mm -hmm. I think they've done that same job for this series. Mm -hmm. So there's some commonality. Certainly the orcs look like orcs should and not CG monstrosities. Like in The Hobbit. Um, House of the Dragon. I'm quite yeah. interested in this one. I know. The more I'm reading about it and the more footage they release, the more excited I'm getting for it. I didn't think I would be fussed about a return mm-hmm. to Westeros, but the way they're talking it up and the way they've found a story that can do something similar but not... I've bought the Fire and Blood History of the Targaryens book to read on my holidays next week, which is the basis for this series. So it has got my interest now. Mm-hmm. They release a sort of behind the scenes with the creative team trailer type thing. And what I really liked was that they said, we have taken lessons learned from what really worked in Game of Thrones and what didn't. And the second thing was we are going to be starting quite intimately and small, allowing people to get to know the world before going lunatic. So uh, which was like like a big, big problem with Game of Thrones. It just went crazy towards the end. Um, so, yeah, fingers crossed for this one. My problem with it is it looks like more the same. But the same is good. 
yeah, this I, is always was, the problem, isn't it? Yeah. Though, with a sequel, you want the same mm. but different. Is kind of what you want. Yeah, <laughs> that's it, fans for you. <laughs> it, it looked like they were pitching lots of very, very interesting and different ideas for what a Game of Thrones second series could be. And it looks like they've gone a little bit down the safe route and like, oh, it's a, a big battle for the Iron Throne again and dragons again. And I kind of wanted to see something a bit different. Yeah. I may be wrong. It's a really tough job for the trailer because they've got to try and connect the old fans, reassure them, but also try and persuade new fans that yeah. something new mm-hmm. uh, is an unenviable task. And I think mm-hmm. they did a good job. Yeah, I think they have persuaded me of that because for this one, we're seeing the Targaryens at the height of their power, whereas they'd basically all been eliminated by the events of Game of Thrones. So what you're saying is it's a phantom menace of Game of Thrones? uh, I would say probably more the High Republic, (laughs) which I know you've not read any of, but it's kind of the apex. They're not ready for their downfall yet. They've also got a story that George R. R. Martin knows the ending to. (coughs) That's a first. Because he has written that whole history of the Targaryen family leading up to the events of Game of Thrones. So... They've got a stronger structure to work from. I'm, I'm pleased he's got all that spare time to write all these spin-offs and prequels. He's just putting off finishing his book. He doesn't have an ending, does he? I saw an interview with him where um, he, he's had a he's a very tough pandemic, as we all have, but he said he's not integrated with society yet and he's just been concentrating on writing for the past two and a half years. How long is this bloody book? It's chapter two. This, I think, is the problem. He's made such a complex and complicated Mm -hmm. world. The challenge is not in introducing new story beats. It's wrapping it all up. It's in a a bigger scale, a similar problem. He could have written two books if he wanted. He's going to. There are are two books left, but Mm -hmm. he's done so much setup, and now it's the point of ending it all. Yeah. Yeah, I can understand why it's going to be more challenging to finish mm-hmm. a story yeah. that big. I don't think there'll be a massive gap between book six and book seven because I think there's so much tying up and, as you said, just putting the groundwork in place for everything to tie up and make sense and come to a, a conclusion. Mm-hmm. So can we each maybe pick one thing that we're most looking forward to out of all the things? I just going to say that. Although in the interest of balance, should we talk about DC? No. 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 Okay, no. good. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was interested to see... There's a second season of the Kevin Smith Masters of the Universe on the way. Oh, yeah. Um, was Dolph Lundgren not at that panel? I tell you who was at that panel who is appearing in season two. William Shatner. Oh. Which means we will get William Shatner and Mark Hamill interacting as characters, which I think might be the first time we've had Star Wars and Star Trek together at last in voice form. Shatner and Carrie Fisher were both in that film fanboys. If that counts. Maybe, yeah. But- Kevin Smith was saying he was very excited to have William Shatner doing the Master of the Universe thing. He gave a line reading and Kevin Smith kind of gave him some direction in the line reading and William Shatner stopped and said, Mr. Smith, you haven't earned the honour of directing me. (laughs) (laughs) Ouch. Wow. Awesome. Be more Shatner. Mm -hmm. I mean, they want the panel together where he told that story, so I assume it's it's, it's all good. (laughs) All right, one thing that we're most looking forward to uh, for me, it's it's She Hulk. This is this is right up my alley. Powerful yeah. woman. I love courtroom dramas, and it looks like it's going to be very funny as well. I go Dungeons and Dragons. It's She Hulk for me as well. Mm-hmm. Really looking forward to that. It'll probably be terrible, but because I've got a big nostalgia for the original, <laughs> um, Clerks Three. Okay. Oh, all right. Okay. That's an off the wall choice. <laughs> Can we go to Comic Con next year? Maybe. Thank you.
All right, let's go into some depth about what we've been enjoying recently. Who would like to go first? The Aristocats taught us that everybody wants to be a cat Mm -hmm. because a cat's the only cat who knows where it's at. Yep. And the movie cats told us the opposite. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that is jellical in nature. Um. But I am not recommending Tom Hooper's movie adaptation of Cats. I am instead recommending a game where you get to be a cat. And that is Stray, which came out recently for PS4 and PS5. And PC. You get to play as a cat. You are a cat exploring a ruined city inhabited by robots, trying to find your way back out to your cat friends. I know. And (laughs) it's a game where you can explore this city. You've got a little drone friend who will help you communicate with the robots. There's a button to meow. (laughs) If you find a carpet, you press L2 and R2 repeatedly to scratch the carpet. If you want to get in through a door, you pad it with your paws like cats do. If you find a comfy cushion or a nice space on a shelf, you can go to sleep and the controller will purr through its volume controls. You have to rotate about three times before you're allowed to sit You do do that, yes. yeah. It does feel like you are a cat. And it's really relaxing. Mm. It's a dystopian landscape. You know, there's neon signs and clearly there were humans. Something's happened. There's a mystery about what has happened to this place, why there are only robots, why even the robots are living in some kind of weird cyberpunk apocalyptic landscape. Mm. But you're a cat, you know, you know. So you're going to find out these things, but you don't really care because you're a cat. <laughs> so the cats have outlived whatever happened to the humans. That is correct, yes. I knew this would happen. Did they yeah. eat all the humans afterwards, which is what we always speculate <laughs> they'll do. I'm only a couple of hours into the game, so this could be the surprise ending. Mm-hmm. But it's just really fun exploring the city as a cat. It's open world, so you can kind of go around at your own pace. But playing as a cat, there's just a level of attachment that, I have not really felt playing as a human or a robot or an alien or whatever. There's a sense of peril that I haven't felt in a game for a long time. You're jumping from rooftop to rooftop, from platform to platform, and I find myself thinking about, I don't know if I can make that. I don't want anything bad to happen to the cat. What what if it's too far away? Um, and if he just misjudges it and he scrabbles on the edge of it, you go, no, cat, help. Um, oh, no. And so you've got an investment. Have you named your cat? I haven't named him yet. He's just cat at the moment. <laughs> okay. But our cat Loki is quite interested in this game. If you press the meow button and the cat on the screen meows, he does look up like, is there mm. another cat here? What's going on? Where's this other cat? And he goes and has a look around because he's sure there's another cat in the room. So uh, it is it is true to cat life. This is why I haven't played this game yet, because I think that meow button might drive my dog to destroy the house in, Quite ser- in search of a mythical cat. So, yeah, if you're looking for a new game to have a go at that isn't too much pressure, it's not too gigantic with the amount of things you've got to achieve it's not focused on microtransactions and upgrade after upgrade or a lot of the things that games in the past few years have had a tendency to get into uh, stray is a really good shout and you get to be a cat it's on ps plus isn't it it is if you're a ps plus plus i can't remember the tiers but ps plus extra i think yeah if you're one of those people who can afford that you get stray included as part of your subscription if you're not, 
then the cost of the game is about half a regular PS4, mm-hmm. PS5 game at the moment. So it's good value for money as well. If it had been called uh, Cat Simulator, would you still have played it? Oh, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> it's not quite along the lines of you know, games like Untitled Goose Game and mm. Goat Simulator. It's not nearly as frustrating as Echo the Dolphin, but it's a game where you can play as an animal protagonist and there's a narrative and there's a mystery to solve as well mm-hmm. and there are puzzles. Luckily, they're puzzles that are at my level and I can achieve them and mm-hmm. I get the sense of satisfaction when I figure out the puzzle. It's something I've always struggled with with games as well. I never got far on Monkey Island because I just couldn't get my brain into that way of thinking of walk figuring out the puzzles. the whole day long. Yeah. I haven't had to resort to a walkthrough <laughs> with Stray yet. I've been able to go, ah, if I pick up that battery and put it in there, that gives me this item. I can take that to that robot and they're going to give me this and that'll work out. So it's pitched at a level where if you're not the most hardcore of gamers, mm-hmm. you're not going to struggle too much with it. I hear it's quite short. I think it's only like six or seven hours in That's length, fine. which is quite yeah. good having spent 120 odd hours and counting on Valhalla. Yeah. Not every game needs to be mm-hmm. content for the sake of content. If it's just a nice contained experience, I'm quite happy with that. Mm-hmm. Any cat bosses? Not yet. I am, other than my cat friends in the prologue, I am the only cat that I have encountered mm-hmm. in the game so far. But there are lots of cat graffiti marks on the walls around the city. So you'd, you'd think, like, um, what what's happened to the world will give some cats an even greater sense of entitlement and want to create factions within the cat world. You might yes. meet mm-hmm. um, a cat who's got bad intentions. Yeah, I've been making friends with the local robots though, so okay. they they will help me out. Ah, robot mm-hmm. army always yeah. good. Yeah, do you is it? A cutscene where you just lick your own ass for half an hour and then spit out the Yeah, it's in the bonus features. <laughs> so, how many cat lives out of nine? Oh. <laughs> um, I, I will give Stray eight cat lives out of nine. Mm-hmm. So, will that be a nine out of ten then? That would be an eight out of ten. An eight but out of ten. I need to stick with the cat theme. Okay. <laughs> meow, meow. <clears throat> Let's go, Peter, next. I'd like to recommend Wolf Like Me which is an Australian set series airing on Amazon Prime in the UK. It's a very odd mixture of romantic comedy drama with occasional dashes of horror. Joss Gad's character is a 40-year-old single father with an 11-year-old daughter, both living in a foreign country and still suffering from the loss of his wife seven years earlier. They meet Isla Fisher, an advice columnist with a terrible secret, the title gives away a bit, who crashes a car into (laughs) Josh's. They have a date, but she runs off leaving something at the table. When Josh follows her to return it, he enters the house and all the shutters come down, trapping him inside, and he discovers she's shut himself that she can't say that carefully. That <laughs> <laughs> she has shut herself in the basement with a live animal. And obviously he's rather concerned at this because it's terrifying and there are really scary noises coming from the basement. It's romantic and sweet sometimes, but not cloying. It's not a gaggy sitcom-style comedy, although it is entertaining watching their relationship develop despite the toxic elements. There are interesting undercurrents of the trauma they both suffered. Arlette Fisher seems to have a way of getting through the daughter that no one else can. But after five short and sweet episodes, it gets really dark for the last episode, where father and daughter feel in genuine danger from the wolf. The performances are all great, and I feel I really wanted these characters to make it through. Your mileage may vary with this. My wife, who can't usually tolerate any sort of rom-com for more than a minute, really enjoyed it. I like things that are a bit weird, 
Often I find something interesting but imperfect, more interesting than polished and boring. The Guardian reviewer wasn't keen because they didn't get on with the mashup of styles, but their reviews do seem a bit unreliable of late. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yep. Wolf Like Me can be found on Amazon Prime in the UK and probably Peacock in the US. So limited series or potential for ongoing? I think potential. In, in fact, I'm sure potential for ongoing. They're definitely hoping that. Yeah. The sixth episode is a big shift in their relationship. Okay. Mm. I like Josh Gad, mm-hmm. um, and I really like Isla Fisher. Are they good in their roles? Yes, very much so. And I think how you get on with those two actors will make a difference to whether you enjoy the series or not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's been a little while since she's had anything major to get stuck into. I can't mm-hmm. think. I can't remember her. Like now, now You See Me? Now You See Me, there was Confessions of a Shopaholic, but I yeah. can't remember her leading anything recently. Yeah, a little while ago. Uh-huh. So mm-hmm. it's, She might have had good kids maybe with... With uh, Sasha Baron Cohen, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. And Josh Gad, he was in um, Murder on the Orient Express. Yes, but uh, again, mostly supporting. Mostly supporting roles. So yeah. um, probably not really been a lead since he was in Book of Mormon, Book of Mormon on stage. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, that's a a good comedy pair. Yes, mm. yeah. yeah, and it is funny. Yeah, definitely. It's not it's not ha ha sitcom. It's comedy drama that's fun to watch mm-hmm. rather than the mm-hmm. thing where you're laughing out loud. The best Isla Fisher role that I can remember is in Wedding Crashes, mm. when she played this demented, like crazy, crazy girl. Uh, but she was so, so funny. So I really like to see her exercise her comic chops. Mm. Yeah. And how much can you say about the wolfy aspect of it? Do we mm. see much wolf? And if so, are we talking American wolf? <laughs> are we talking Season three of Buffy Wolf. Are we, what, what kind of wolf are we getting in for? In some ways, it would have been better if you didn't see it quite as clearly. Mm-hmm. It would have been better left a bit more to the imagination and things. The, most of the sixth episode is really well handled in terms of a sense of imminent danger that you can't actually see. But you know it's out there. You know it's coming. And that, that's actually really good. So to some extent, seeing it a bit more slightly undermines that. But I don't think it matters. I think it's good enough. Uh, you know, it is quite violent for a very brief time, mm. but kind of appropriate mm. to what's happening. And you're really concerned for how the daughter will react because she doesn't know about the situation and things. And, that, you know, it makes you care about it and what will mm. happen to them. There's metaphors at work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you like the weird and the offbeat, it's worth a try. And it's only six half hour episodes. It is, yes. And they're all short and sweet. So. Mm. I saw the trailer and I was like, I have no idea whether I like or hate this. It looked really... It's unlike you to not have an opinion. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it looked like a real mismatch tonally, which uh-huh. worried me, but if it works... I quite then... enjoy that, and I know mm-hmm. from past discussions you tend to like things that are sort of brave tries that don't necessarily make it, yeah. rather than things that are slick and boring. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah, you might, you might not. <laughs> yeah. I'm also not a big rom-com fan, though, so... It doesn't go too heavy on that. Mm. I like to say Judith normally hates rom-coms. Is Man- Mandy not a rom-com? <laughs> I mean, there's romance in there. <laughs> um, there's comedy in there, not always intentionally. <laughs> uh, so how many howls at the full moon out of ten would Wolf Like Me get? An interesting seven and a half. Mm. So seven full moons and a half moon. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Total eclipse. I don't remember that Jaffa cake outfit. I very well. That every was going single, through my head even before you said it. Every single time. Full moon, half moon. Total eclipse. Total eclipse. 
<laughs> I can go next and then we can finish on a fun uplifting one. Okay. Oh, <laughs> okay. oh no. I, I, I hope you sit down, guys. Mm-hmm. This is actually a recommendation. Mm. No. No. What? What is the world? And this is um, the new David Cronenberg film, which is. Pass. Ca- <laughs> <laughs> Uh, which is called Crimes of the Future, which was also the name of the first film that he made in 1970, but is not a remake or in any way connected. Oh, I thought it might be like George R. R. Martin. It took him this long to finish it. <laughs> so this is Cronenberg's um, return for the first time in probably about 20 years to sci-fi genre horror filmmaking. It's his first sci-fi film since existence in 1999. Since then, he's gone through a kind of a more mainstream phase where there's still that Cronenberg feel to things, but things like Eastern Promises, History of Violence, um, A Dangerous Method, those kind of more mainstream mainstream. dramas. (laughs) That's still pretty violent. I was going to say. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But yeah, films that got lots of award nominations, I think, Mm -hmm. was it History of Violence, Viggo Mortensen got nominations, things like that. Yeah. Whereas your John Classic... Cronenberg yeah. well, they probably wouldn't have done. By mainstream, you just mean not body horror. Yeah. Things like A History of Violence and Eastern Promises are basically straight dramas. Yeah. As opposed to bodies exploding and weird sci-fi concepts. And this yeah. is very much a return to body horror science fiction. We are set in the near future, which is a kind of apocalyptic future in some extent. There's something has happened, but you're not quite sure why. Is there a cat? <laughs> Unless you're a cat, yeah. Um, Actually, no, I don't want any cats in this Cronenberg film. I don't know what's going to happen to them. And we've got to a point where people don't feel pain and there's no infectious disease. We have a couple of performance artists... And the interesting thing about the performance artist is something is happening to him that is also happening to other people in that they are growing new internal organs that don't appear to have any purpose. Mm-hmm. And the performance art is that he and his partner basically perform surgery on themselves in front of an audience to remove... <laughs> I could not be more out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, to... <laughs> <laughs> to re- remove these new organs and display them as artistic endeavours. <laughs> oh, sorry, I just, I've got like the creepy crawly feelings all over <laughs> just the thought of it. This is a film that opens with a, an eight-year-old boy being murdered by his bum and it goes darker from there, if that's, if that's safe to say. Um, so yeah, at the same time, you've got this, this mother who has killed her son for some reason and it all ties into kind of an overarching kind of murky conspiracy theory we've got the police and a government department called the department of new vice who are concerned about how bodies are evolving and whether this evolution is a good thing or a bad thing and whether this evolution presents a threat to society and there is also without going into spoilers an overarching environmental theme as well Mm -hmm. which all kind of ties in together a little bit at the end um, don't go in expecting, you know, a neat tie. I'm not <laughs> <laughs> Stay away. Yeah, don't go in expecting a neatly tied up plot. What you've got is really almost like a Cronenberg's greatest hits, and it's interesting that as he's heading into his 80s, he said explicitly that this wasn't the intention of the film, but it is a film that has the title of his very first film and also looks 
back and combines elements and motifs from a lot of his films. So there's a big chunk of Videodrome in there in terms of transformation of the body. There's the fly in there about uncontrollable body change and whether this is a good thing or a bad thing. The way a lot of people can survive and control themselves is by like having to have machines bond to them and that machinery is very much in a visual tone with the stuff in existence. Almost like H.R. Geiger-esque machinery and flesh combined. And then if you've seen Crash, there's something that happens in this that happens in Crash that we all... There is. Um, that we, you know, I, I, I won't go into it. Thank you. Does yeah. it involve yeah. orifices that shouldn't be there? It involves orifices that shouldn't be there, yes. <laughs> so if you were to watch this one, you should probably have seen some other Cronenberg films before? No, I don't think necessarily. <laughs> if only as a warning. <laughs> yeah. um, I think it stands as a film on its own, but you would get the nice little references. To, Define to... nice. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 think, I, I think as a Cronenberg fan, I appreciated the tying into the other films and the thematics, but yeah. it stands on its own. It's obviously very, very low budget, and you can see that you know a, a lot of scenes are set in small rooms with no background next to it. This is a script that he wrote twenty years ago, and originally Nicolas Cage was <laughs> going oh, to start. Oh, yeah. It says something when Nicolas Cage turns down your film, doesn't it? <laughs> I think it was made of a three and a half million budget, which you know these days is is, is pennies. It's got a very good cast. V- Viggo Mortensen is in there. Mm. Leah Sidhu, Leah Sidhu is amazing in it. She's really, really good in it. Kristen Stewart has a small but interesting role that she plays very oddly, which kind of works in the film, but she's a very repressed character, and that's even like the way she speaks is very halting and squeaky, and you're very hard to hear at some point. There's bits that don't quite work, like Viggo Mortensen's character is in pain all the time as a result of these organs that he has grown inside him. He's constantly coughing and wheezing and choking and struggling to speak. And there's a few moments where it slips into Rick and Morty. Um, <laughs> kind of like, in between the lines. Just stuff. when I thought I was out, <laughs> I was even more out. <laughs> yeah. So, John, if you mm. could have an extra organ, what would it be? Uh, I, I, I would have... Internal organ. Uh, I- internal organ. Thank God for that. I'd, I'd, have an extra, I'd have an extra liver, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, yours is already large enough. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's really good. It's proper Cronenberg, like what we used to get in the 80s and 90s, while still exploring new ideas. I mean, I think I've made this clear already, but it's not an easy watch. There's lots of scenes of surgery in there, but it is all in the surface of a plot. Been rewritten a few times, I think, and there's a few plot strands that appear and don't really go anywhere. Overall, it all ties together. Did you say it's a three and a half million mm-hmm. uh, pound budget? How is it being released? Uh, is it kind of one of those things where they just put it on streaming and don't put any pizzazz around it? Well, it, it got a very good reception at Cannes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was in for the Palm Door and got like a six minute standing ovation. It's getting a very limited cinema release. So it it was in cinemas for a few weeks in America and it's now available on streaming. Mm-hmm. Um, Did you say three million? Three and a half million. Yeah. I mean, that's like a music video nowadays yeah um it's getting a, a again a limited week or two week cinema release over here starting on the 9th of september as well as being available on streaming at around the same time 
Has anybody watched any Cronenberg films? I assume Peter's seen a few. Yeah, I've, loads. Pretty. I've, what I realised from your description is that I've watched pretty much none of them since Sexist Den. So I've watched all the body horror stuff yeah. and then just not watched any of what, what you described as mainstream mm-hmm. normal films. I have seen The Fly. Yeah. Uh-huh. The Presuming we're talking about the Jeff Goldblum, yeah. The Fly. Yeah. yeah. And I've seen one of the two Viggo Mortensen ones from the mid-aughts. Did you enjoy The Fly? Yeah, it was... Fine. What, what what the fly? Does, I mean, I'd seen yeah. the episode of The Simpsons where Bart gets turned into a fly <laughs> prior to watching the film, so I kind of knew where it was going. Um. The fly is an amazing thing in that it managed to be a massive mainstream Hollywood successful blockbuster while still a Cronenberg. Film. Yeah, this hmm. is why this is why I've seen it. Growing up, my parents always talked about it as one of their favourite horror films. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that you know, version, saw, not yeah, the... that version. Yeah, the the Jeff Goldblum version. Mm-hmm. So it was one of those ones that in the video shop. I'd spot it go, oh, The Fly, I've heard of that. I'm mm-hmm. going to watch that one day. Um, and I did watch it one day and it was mm-hmm. good. Yeah, But it was one of these, it's on one of the ITV channels late at night with adverts cut through it, yeah. which isn't the a- ideal way to watch any film. Mm. Around that time, he was. He came very close to directing Return of the Jedi. Mm. He came very close to directing Total Recall. Mm. Um, and more bizarrely, he was seriously approached for Top Gun and uh, Flashdance. Right. <laughs> it's just so yeah. hard to imagine what he would have yeah, done with Top just, Gun, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's a lot of these more esoteric directors from around that time. They sort of make one quite mainstream film mm-hmm. and then go back into. Yeah. Mm. I think it's so Cronenberg mm-hmm. with The Fly, David Lynch with June, I suppose. Mm. Mm-hmm. Terry Gilliam, Fisher King. Yeah. yeah. Films where they've made all these sort of weird, idiosyncratic films. They get one that seems to just hit with a lot of people. Yeah. And. But it's only ever the one. Mm-hmm. It doesn't then turn into, you know, hit after hit yeah. after hit. Almost like it's an itch that they scratch to go, I can make a hit if mm. you want me to. Yeah. But I'd rather be making my kind of film. Yeah. I mean, he, he, he did fly and then he went straight on to do Dead Ringers. Again, and there's a lot of Dead Ringers in uh, Crimes of the Future. Dead Ringers is quite funny. I quite enjoy that on a Friday night. Radio <laughs> for. Can you imagine John Culshaw fans <laughs> going, and, what, 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 what's Jeremy, what, there's Jeremy Irons and there's Jeremy Irons and no oh dear. <laughs> It's the same thing with, with Crash. I have visions of when the Paul Haggis Crash won the Oscar, mm. at least when Little Old Lady invented the wrong DVD and got an entirely different experience. <laughs> a much better one. Right. So how many extra kidneys out of 10? Uh, mm. As a Cronenberg fan? As a Cronenberg fan, nine. Mm. As a normal, normal. human being? <laughs> um, as a normal horror film, extreme cinema fan, who isn't a massive Cronenberg fanboy like me who would forgive it, who forgives it some of its limitations and some of its vagaries, seven. Okay. I think that's the most small print we've had in a score. <laughs> <laughs> if you can get over some of the extreme imagery, there's intelligence behind it and every film is saying something and has a point to it. Videodrome's an amazing film. Everyone who does mainstream things, he did the version of The Dead Zone with Christopher Walken and Martin Sheen. That's a great little film. But again, it's a, a very mainstream but even the stuff that he's done that hasn't worked, there's always an idea there and there's always something to latch on to that's interesting. And if you read interviews with him as well, he's a very cerebral person and he's a lovely, really nice, cheerful, genial bloke, which is bizarre. Oh, well, that's nice. Not a psychopath. No, most horror directors aren't. That's what they want you to do. Yeah, <laughs> like Cronenberg's famously nice. Wes Craven was apparently like the loveliest guy on the planet and John Carpenter, John Carpenter yeah. 
Where's the Zack Snyders and the Michael Bays of the world? Mm-hmm. Michael Bay was nice to me. <laughs> Hazel, bring us home. Okie dokie. My recommendation is Baz Luhrmann's Elvis. Mm. And I will preface this by saying this is going to be a very, very positive review because this is my standout film of the year. So far. Uh, I know it is a film... You haven't seen Comes of the Future yet, <laughs> I never will. <laughs> so I do know that it has divided people somewhat, uh, but I am very much on the side of the people who were utterly captivated by it. So this is an Elvis biopic that is sort of told from the point of view of Colonel Tom Sanders, who is uh, was Elvis's... Parker. Yes. Tom, Tom, Tom Colonel Tom Parker. What is it? Tom, he said Tom Sanders. Colonel Sanders of KFC. Colonel Sanders. Anyway, so this is an Elvis biopic that is sort of told from the point of view of Colonel Tom Parker, who was Elvis's manager. It's pretty well known that he was a complete fraud, right down to his name. So he wasn't a colonel. He wasn't called Tom. He called Sanders. <laughs> <laughs> he was a Dutchman called Andreas. Living in the US illegally. I assume that means he can't pronounce the surname. Yep. <laughs> and he, he took 50% of Elvis's profits and he made some very questionable decisions about his career. He's played by Tom Hanks and history remembers Tom Parker as a villain whose actions, according to some, may well have contributed to Elvis's early death. Tom Hanks does what he does best, which is bring a level of authenticity to the character. I think in someone else's hands, the role could have gone down the, like the pantomime villain route. Stop it, John. He's thinking bad thoughts about Tom Hanks, I can <gasps> tell. I am. Um, I, 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 won't, I won't prejudge because I, I, I understand I may enjoy him in this. Okay. So in his hands, the character has a lot of nuance, has many levels, but he does still come across as a piece of shit. <laughs> you, might, you might like that. You might like that. Multi-level shit. Yes. Um, there's actually there's a standout scene where Elvis is on the floor. He's pretty much passed out, and the colonel instructs his doctor to pump him full of drugs and insist that like the only thing that matters is that that man gets up on that stage tonight. It's weird that Elvis and Michael Jackson are the same doctor. Did they? No, I don't think they did, but that's exactly <laughs> what happened to Michael Jackson mm. with his manager. It's like it's really weird parallel, isn't it? Mm. Mm. Elvis is, of course, played by Austin Butler. And I think for an actor, Elvis is probably one of the hardest roles out there because, like, there's literally an entire industry that is dedicated to impersonating him. You know, there's like there's annual competitions to see who would sound and who looks the most like Elvis. So you mean portraying him in a realistic way rather than being an exaggerated version of him? Yes, there's that. Also, it's been done quite a few times before, but most people would know what Elvis looks like, what he sounds like. He's Mm. that... Mm-hmm. So I do think it's probably an unenviable task, but Austin Butler proves that he is more than capable of it. I'm a grown woman now, so the the, the teenage obsessions that I used to get over... Um, Chris Hemsworth. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so maybe not. <laughs> I did used to like like properly lust after iconic male roles in film and television. Um, I didn't get that here, but... I guarantee you, like a few years ago, I would have gone full Leonardo DiCaprio in Titanic crazy over this guy. Um, He is smoking hot. And from all accounts, Elvis was too. Mm -hmm. I think we kind of forget that. And like in his heyday, he was Mm -hmm. really, really captivating. So the charisma, the charm, the sex appeal, it is bursting off the screen. And one of Elvis's things was to like serenade (laughs) what? Sorry, one of Elvis's things. That's childish, but... (laughs) 
he had more than one. <laughs> what? Was he? Was it like? Was he eating crabs in the future? Was that his extra <laughs> organ? Um, one of his uh, things was to serenade and probably go too far with the women and the girls who were front row of his concerts, and you definitely kind of saw that in this film. It is a sensational performance, and I think that Austin Butler deserves to be in award contention what for it. What else has he done? I don't know the yeah, name. Yeah, I didn't know him either. I'm not sure. I know he's, he's been in, I've forgotten the name of it, some sci-fi film. So Austin Butler, was it in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Oh, as one of the uh, Manson family. Yeah, he was in The Dead oh, Don't yeah. Die. He was in The Carrie Diaries, the Sex and the City spin-off. That was prequel. a prequel, wasn't it? Was that High School Carrie? I know he desperately fought for the role and it didn't like Jared Leto himself into it, but the voice, I think, was the most important aspect to him. And if you hear him doing interviews, it's a very Elvisy low mm. voice and it's not his natural voice, but he did it for so long in preparation and then COVID kind of elongated the filmmaking process as mm-hmm. well. So he's kind of now been left with this Elvis. <laughs> yeah, so it doesn't feel like an impersonation. No, 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 no very much not. So I was listening to an interview with Baz Luhrmann and he talked about the moment that they showed the film to Priscilla, Elvis's wife. And it happened to be this situation where he handed over the film and then he had to go and get a plane. So he spent the entire plane ride with his fingers crossed, not knowing what Priscilla's reaction was going to be. If anyone's going to be the ultimate judge of Austin Butler's performance mm. as Elvis, it's going to be Priscilla. So he got off the plane and he still hadn't heard anything. And then he heard from Priscilla's uh, security guard, who was sounding very, very emotional. And they said that Priscilla had a very profound emotional response to the film and was in floods of tears and incapable of talking. And that's why it took a, a while to respond. So apparently she felt that they really got his humanity, specifically his anger. It showed the whole spectrum of his personality and, and who he was as a person more so than anybody else had ever done. And it really brought back some strong memories and feelings for her, which is why she had felt so emotional about it. It's interesting. You, you, you kind of said at the beginning, like, oh, we all know Elvis. We all know what he looks like and what he sounds mm. like. But he kind of was in that era before we knew lots of stuff about Star's personal life and everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, I, I, I know the story of Elvis, but in terms of what he was like as a person, I haven't a clue. Yeah, he's always been presented as this larger-than-life stratospheric superstar where you almost don't think of Elvis as a person. Elvis is an icon. Yeah, Mm -hmm. but I went into the movie quite a big fan of his songs, but not knowing much about him as a person other than he married someone who was 14 when he met her and also he died in the toilet. I think that was the extent of my knowledge. Two things you've got in common, Dan. (laughs) (laughs) I did indeed (laughs) die on the toilet. (laughs) Yes. Now, although a lot of people who have uh, not seen the film have some questions about how Lerman-esque it is, mm-hmm. um, because he's got a very fast-paced, quirky editing style that's not to everyone's tastes, I'd say this is a six on the Lermanometer. 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 Yes. It's nowhere near as Batchet as Moulin Rouge or Romeo and Juliet, mm-hmm. but it, it does start out fairly frantic. There's lots of like looming drone shots of Vegas. But it does sort of calm down mm-hmm. as you get into like the first like half an hour or so, and it lets the humanity shine through. Because it's been nearly ten years since The Great Gatsby, which I mm-hmm. think was his last cinema mm-hmm. release. 
I hate Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> really? I hate it with a passion, but I really like Moulin Rouge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Same here. Yeah, I've got the DVD double set of Romeo and Juliet <laughs> and Moulin Rouge. I, I like both of those. Great Gatsby, I enjoyed watching at the time, but can't remember very much mm. about other than the gif of DiCaprio holding oh, yeah. the glass <laughs> with the fireworks glass. going yeah. behind. That's the, that's yeah. the only image yeah. that I can yeah. think of. We went to the cinema and I had to sit in the front row because it was the only seats left. And uh, being in the front row for that, for Gatsby was not a nice experience. Mm. I was just overwhelmed. Mm. Is this a cinema film? Is this a thing you oh, should yeah. see on the big screen? Yeah. Definitely, definitely. Um, in, in terms of uh, chronology as well, I might talk a little bit about what's sort of included. It takes us from Elvis's childhood and his introduction to gospel music and the influence that this had. And a surprising amount of integration with black kids mm-hmm. at the time. There's kind of like, like a, an underlying story of the film is uh, because this is 1950s, 1960s America, a huge period. Uh, I know that we're still in it now, but a huge period for civil rights. So we do um, get the backdrop of Martin Luther King's assassination, Robert Kennedy's assassination, which um, I don't know how much they played around with the time of this, but it, it was the time of the comeback special. And they were hearing about the news and this kind of had a bit of an impact. So, yeah, we, we see his whole kind of life, really, the early carnivals that he performed at, the whole, if he thrusts his hips like that again, we'll arrest him. And he did. And they did. <laughs> Apparently that didn't happen in real life. No, I don't they think don't it, I don't think it did. Him, yeah. No. Also a little bit about his floundering Hollywood career and the decisions that Tom Parker made, which is a fairly heartbreaking moment that he says, um, I've never made a movie that I'm actually mm. proud of. If he'd made Treasure Ape. I'm just know, saying right? that that would have turned it yeah. all around. I mean, early Cronenberg, as it could have been in Shivers, The Brood. Yeah, yeah. but he, he was churning out like three movies a year at one point, yeah. wasn't he? Yeah. I mean, he's made an enormous number of movies. Yeah. Surprisingly few had treasure apes in them. <laughs> <laughs> wasn't he down for A Star Is Born? And yes. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's referenced the Barbara Streisand offering yeah. uh, the co-star role and Tom Parker saying, no, it's not Elvis's film, so we're not going to do it. Mm. Yeah. So it's Parker just... was around for the whole career yep yeah absolutely not yeah. quite from the beginning because yeah. mm-hmm. there was uh, whoever produced him at sun records yeah mm. and then parker kind of came and almost took him away from yeah. that he was like he's white <laughs> <laughs> yeah um so oh they got the full leather black outfit in the comeback special yes yeah, that, that was great a treat <laughs> i mean he, he really did have great. the sex appeal and stuff at that point yeah. and you could see what people saw mm. in him and things and that's the that's a really important part of the film it's a culmination of his frustration at the way he's being managed and his rebellious nature shining through there's the vegas residency which felt like a prison sentence for him again a bit like the michael jackson thing because there's mm-hmm. a very similar thing there isn't yeah there? And there's the heartbreaking performance of Unchained Melody a few weeks before he died as well, which floods of tears. Uh, Unchained Melody is an important song for me. Um, and my dad sang it with my uncle at our wedding uh, nearly a year ago. And mm. it was wonderful. So that was that extra meaning for me. For that last song, I wasn't actually sure whether I was watching actual Elvis or the guy made up at that point. It's, I think it's the guy made up, but it is his voice, Elvis's right, voice. Okay. Yeah, that made sense because there were there were aspects into the recording where I thought that's actually a real recording. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I made an interview and said the early stuff is Austin Butler, and then the later stuff because obviously Elvis's voice changed and is kind of what they did. I think with Bohemian Rhapsody, where mm-hmm. it's an amalgamation of the two and I think then when it mm-hmm. gets to the it worked really well because you described Elvis yeah. you described that and it sounds like it's going to be sort of Frankenstein together mm-hmm. but really it, it was 
sort of yeah. immaculately stitched together. Yeah. That was the thing. At the beginning, say, third of the movie, it, it was so many levels and textures, both mm. on the audio side as well, much more than the yeah. director obviously cares about the audio. Things blending into each other constantly and changing. Yeah. It was quite magical, really, mm-hmm. that, yeah. that aspect of the movie. Yeah. Uh, the only thing I felt there... I was kind of blown away a bit by the technicality instead of the story at that point. Mm-hmm. And it was a little lacking in emotion in the beginning part mm-hmm. because it was so much concentrating on just getting through the beats of the story and all the technical bits. Mm-hmm. But it was still an amazing thing to see. Mm-hmm. And I still wholeheartedly recommend it to yeah. anyone. <laughs> I think magical is the right word as well um, because there's a lot to cram in in two and a half hours. But I, I was never bored. I never looked at my watch, which I'll be honest, I checked my watch every 10 minutes during Thor, Love and Thunder. Mm. It felt like one of those magical experiences that reminded me why I love the movies, why I love going to the cinema. I felt like I had a relationship with this film. I, I, don't, I don't know how to justify that, but I felt like I had a relationship. It, a it, it moved you. It spoke to me. Yeah. It moved me. I'm so glad that the movie got made in the the way it did because, um, well, quite frankly, I couldn't help but fall in love with it. Oh. Oh, I know. I had to get a pun in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> so, oddly enough, just a day or two before John and I had been to see you before you playing Can't Help Falling in Love. Mm-hmm. And Very I think good. you were saying you didn't know it was an Elvis song at one point. As a kid in the 80s, it was a UB40 song. Because <laughs> <laughs> it, it was a massive hit for them. Mm. It, so- it sounds really good. It makes me... I don't know when I will have time to go to the cinema for two and a half hours to watch it, but mm-hmm. I really want to go and see it right now. Well, a little less conversation and haul oh. your ass to the cinema. <laughs> so, yeah. um, <laughs> I'm older than Elvis was when he died now. Mm-hmm. He was 42. Yeah. That feels Not like to give a, away your age. That feels like an important moment in my life. You've outlived Elvis. <laughs> Every time I'm sat on the toilet with a peanut butter jelly sandwich, mm-hmm. I'm thinking... And a gun. <laughs> <laughs> There's a chance I might not outlast him here. (laughs) (laughs) Belly full of pills. (laughs) So, um... How many blue suede shoes out of ten? Oh, ten. How shook up out of ten were you? I was incredibly shook up, yes. How many pieces of underwear on the stage out of ten? Oh, I threw all ten that I was wearing (laughs) on the stage. (laughs) How many hound dogs? You came prepared. How many hot dogs? Hound dogs. Oh, hound dogs. Oh, it's nothing but a ten out of ten hound dog. Mm. But it, it really does feel like... Such a cinema film, doesn't it? That you mm. will benefit so much more from seeing it in the cinema than, than at home, yeah. mm-hmm. if you can. So where did you go and see it? Hindsight. Oh, so the posh bit, you want it in the ghetto. <laughs> oh. Hey. <laughs> I wondered where you go with that. You're looking at me like I've got some more, you know, I think you've got a suspicious mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I grew up watching Elvis films because my mum was a big Elvis fan. And we had all the albums and we had all, all the films. And, well, but he was the American Cliff Richard. He was, who Manny was also, <laughs> also a fan of, yeah. My grandma got me a Best of Elvis tape um, for Christmas when I was probably six or seven. And it was one of the sort of first music tapes that I sort of mm. properly got into as music. I do have to Spice just, Girls. But. No, this is pre-Spice Girls, um, by about a year. Um, my sister was Spice Girls. Um, so your sister was the Spice Girls? She was, she was all five of them, yeah. It was quite impressive. Older with mirrors. But that Elvis Best Of was one of the first tapes I would listen to start to finish and liked all mm. of the songs on it. So mm-hmm. he's kind of always... On your mind? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> there are hundreds of these. It's going to take a while. <laughs> it's weird because I've grown, I've got a lot of external mutated organs from watching Cronenberg <laughs> films, but I don't have a wooden heart. <laughs> 
think you do. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. It's a cold, dead heart, John. Yeah. Need someone to love you tender. Yeah. Uh. That is all for today's episode of Nerdfest. Thank you so much for listening. We will be back in two weeks' time. Until then, catch us on social media at Nerdfest UK and spread the word about the podcast. I'm there if you can. And if you're feeling in the spirit of giving, then we would love for you to leave us a review on your podcast channel of choice. John, in the spirit of giving, what is this week's reward for our listeners? If anybody gives us a nice review, I'll, I'll put on my cat costume and I'll come and I'll tap on the front door until you've let me in. I'll curl up on the sofa next to you and let you stroke me for a couple of hours until I get and leave. And it won't be until the next morning that you realise I've done a shot on your front door. <laughs> <laughs> That's not what I meant by reward. Uh, but okay, uh, until next time, you've been listening to... A gelatinous cube. <laughs> Join me in the chorus of this one. A man who used to be a werewolf, but he's all right now. No. A man who has surprisingly little takers for his display of extraneous organs. <laughs> a woman who's been all shook up to the extent that I don't like Chris Hemsworth anymore. <gasps> It's true. I'll maybe Whoa. explain more next time. What? Whoa. What did Love and Thunder do to you? Exactly. <laughs> On that note, we will see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye bye. 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 <laughs> totally. <laughs> <laughs>